NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2. Now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots! 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 Why? Now streaming. Dad! He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Does that. Vacation Friends 2, rated R, now streaming only on Hulu. We're gonna build a train so big it can't be stopped. From the executive producers of Power, we got enemies eyeing us, cops clocking us. Comes the new season of Power Book 4, Force. Tommy Egan is the linchpin to bringing down all of these gangs. Egan's too dangerous to be left alive. Power Book 4, Force. Game over. Premieres Friday, September 1st, only on Stars and the Stars app. Want to know more about Fred Spoffer's mustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past? Well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. And luckily for you, season three has just started. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. Welcome to this week's Wagon Wheel. Lots to get through, and I don't have much time because I have to watch the India-England day three, is it? Yeah, day three. Let's call it day three. Anyway, but thanks for coming in to Spotify Green Room if you're here live. If you're not here live and you're listening on Red Inca Podcast, that's also good. And if you're on YouTube, and you can see my face. Lots of great questions to start with uh, from uh, Patreon. If you're not supporting us on Patreon, no one is going to break your arm to make you do it. Bit of a gag there, but... Patreon allows you to get the podcasts before everyone else. Uh, there's a bunch of other things. You get, you know, special Q&As with me and the ability to chat on some of the tiers and, and ask the first questions on the Spotify green room. And Will Cooling has asked a couple of questions, actually, over on Patreon. Why has no one tried to do an IPL for first-class cricket? Uh, they actually have tried to do an IPL for test cricket. Uh, there was ZTV, Lalit Modi, Ding Kaino all uh, looked at doing something along those lines. It didn't quite work. Uh, that was going to be this big rebel league where essentially you would have franchise test cricket, which I suppose is sort of what you're talking about, Will. Um, I think it's just a harder thing to market. Um, you need a lot, a lot more money. You don't need a lot of money to, to start a T20 league which is why some of them go broke very soon after. You do need a lot of money, I think, to be able to do a test league properly. But yeah, people have thought about it. And I would assume that one day that we will have some kind of a franchise, whether it be first class or a test version of that, I'm not sure. 
Uh, we'll ask another question. Why can't we have uh, it where each polling side chooses the type of ball they want to use rather than being settled by the host? Essentially, the, the, you need – but there's a lot of different problems with the balls, Will, when it comes down to it. But I think uh, the most important thing to start with is that the balls need to suit the environment. They need to be tested and need to be good enough in the environment. And if you were bringing over a ball from another, if you bring the SG ball to Australia, my guess is it wouldn't behave particularly well. It wouldn't go particularly well. Um, but I think there should be a lot more research and development done in balls. Um, I think I've talked about this before. If I was, the ICC was run correctly. I wouldn't say if I was running the ICC, but if the ICC was run correctly, you would create a space race between a bunch of different companies. I'd be trying to get Nike and Adidas and Wilson and Spalding involved in all this sort of stuff as well. And be like, look, there's $5 million for each of you. Go off and make a different ball for different regions. You know, maybe make a pink ball that actually works. Maybe make a white ball that actually works. Um, so there's a lot of problems with balls. But, yeah, you can't – I don't think you can just drop – I mean, as we saw, they tried to use the Dukes in Australian cricket and it didn't particularly work. You needed a special kind of Dukes. And even then it didn't work exactly as they wanted. Balls are generally very region-specific because, uh, as we know in cricket, pitches are very region-specific. <laughs> Uh, uh, Kumar says, what is the difference between a false shot and a not in control shot? Oh, so he's just talking about the quick vis and quick info things. I think they mean the exact same thing off, off the top of my head. Uh, uh, in for whatever reason at quick info, they started calling it not in control. Um, partly, partly because maybe it's a bit friendlier to the batters, uh, and quick vis went with a false shot, but, but essentially it means that you're trying to hit the ball to cover and it goes to square leg or you're playing and missing, or you're trying to keep the ball on the ground and it's going up in the air. You know, that, that, that's essentially what those two uh, metrics mean. Ian Price says, uh, for all the debate success otherwise of the 100, it has undoubtedly succeeded in terms of raising the profile of the women's game. Uh, if and when would you be tempted uh, into standalone women's fixtures? It, it's really interesting, the 100. I think you're right. I think its major success was with women's game. I think it, it's... It's undoubtedly done more than any – if you would have had a normal league, let's say you had the Blast and then you had the Women's Blast, it would always be the add-on league. The fact that the Women's 100 started at the same time as the Men's 100 was huge. I really do. And the fact that it was the first game as well. It wasn't – they weren't supposed to be doubleheaders. I think they were supposed to be different tournaments. Um, and then because of COVID, it just became a lot easier to do it as uh, doubleheaders. No one really thought that doubleheaders would work. I think the ECB were actually quite nervous about it, and they've ended up being very good. I think they're certainly going to play doubleheaders next year. I would start to phase them out a little bit. I would have key games where you have doubleheaders, so certainly on weekends it would be great. Um, you know, if you've got both leads, uh, leads, what are they, Northern Team, whatever they're called. I should know this after the first thought of it. Um, you know, playing on a week, on a Saturday or a Sunday or, you know, on a public holiday, whatever it may be, I think it's good. But I do think they need to do some more standalone women's games as much as anything just to um, see if it works because um, you don't really want the two together. You, you really want them to be both successful separate to each other. Uh, Chris says, has there ever been any consideration of having some geographically related associate teams create a conglomerate team in the style of the West Indies? Well, Chris, I don't know how much you know about cricket, uh, but Ireland is not one country. So they are a conglomerate team. They're Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland. No, I don't think we necessarily need to do that. Um, also, I think, you know, the West Indies ha share a university structure. They, something else, isn't it? University cricket and there's a third um, uh, structure. Um, 
they're also, they rely on each other in a way that, you know, uh, who have you got here? Scotland and Netherlands don't have that kind of tight-knit relationship. I think it would cause problems. Also, you know, I think that yeah, when it comes to the Olympics, all those sorts of things and, and Commonwealth Games, all those things become a little bit more tricky uh, going forward. You know, we're going to have a Team GB team. I don't know what will happen with Ireland. Um, off the top of my head, the West Indies obviously will have to play as individual countries as well. So the, I think there are some trickier sorts of uh, parts to that, but I really don't think logistically that works um, perfectly well. Christopher Hart says, why uh, would not putting a limit on overseas in uh, the county cricket uh, end up benefiting England by the standard being higher or would it prevent opportunities in the long run? I think, you know, this argument could be had anywhere. Um, you know, it's we've seen it in Premier League football. We've probably seen it a little bit in the IPL. Uh, we will see it in the NBA going forward with so many overseas players coming into the NBA. You do strengthen your league, but you make it harder for... Do you, you, I don't think you make it harder for young, incredibly talented players to come through. I think you make it harder for late bloomers like Rory Burns to come through in that sort of situation. Um, also, I'm not sure the money is quite there. You have to play the overseas players a little bit more than you do the domestic players. You know, uh, there's visas and everything. The government would, might might get involved, uh, weirdly enough. Um, getting visas for cricket, for county cricket, is unnecessarily tough, I would say, already. Um, but, but it's a really good uh, question, Christopher. And Sadiq says, uh, I'm bringing up this question again, Okay. If Virat Kohli plays the Tendulkar way and stops executing the cover drive like Sachin Tendulkar was forced to, it would be better for English conditions. I think we over-egg the Sachin Tendulkar taking the cover drive away for one particular innings. And I also think that playing a bowl, a facing bowling now in 2021, fast bowling now, is much harder than it was in 2004. Uh, Tendulkar didn't have to go up against the wobble seam. You could say this for any particular in inning, Sadiq, that you could take away a particular shot and would go away. At a certain point, it it's not a particularly easy thing unless you've spent months on it. I don't think that the cover drive is necessarily Virat Kohli's problem at the moment. I think it's the wobble ball seam, the immaculate lengths, the great bowling, uh, the assistance that the England bowlers have had. Um, the cover drive is just part of the way that he plays in a way that Sachin Tendulkar decided to play cover drives, whereas it's it's a different skill set. It, it, it's not it's not a fair comparison. It's more like saying to Sachin Tendulkar, "Are you going to stop flicking the ball off middle and leg stump?" Which is something that I'm not sure Sachin would have been able to do. Um, and it's very hard to do it from innings to innings. I, I think that it becomes part of the mythology. But how many times did Sachin Tendulkar actually get dismissed off a cover drive in his career? probably a, a massive amount of times. And in one particular innings, he tried something different and it worked. But it, it wasn't like it was something he did all the time. Um, it was maybe conditions-based. Uh, he maybe felt really comfortable in the rest of his game. I just don't think it's a fair comparison. Um, uh, and you've got another question, Sadiq, where you say, you mentioned COVID-19 break, uh, outbreaks and biobubbles. Uh, clearly hasn't suited the Indian captain. Could India afford um, another middle order crumble today? Well, I'm assuming you mean day three. Um, <laughs> um, look, they, everyone in the world, I, I really think that people need to look at every every uh, batting situation in the world at the moment. Um, India has the second best batting lineup 
in the world, I would say, behind New Zealand at the moment. And they're not making, and India aren't making a lot of runs because no one's making a lot of runs. Uh, the bowling is better. The bowling is faster. The bowling is more accurate. The wobble seam has changed things. The pitches have changed things. No one's making any runs. Um, we are seeing teams regularly bowled out for very cheap. I mean, England have, have been, look, England have just picked random players to bat, um, open the batting and bat at three because they've kind of run out of people. This is not a, this is not an Indian specific thing. So if, you know, especially if you're coming on my channel and you're asking questions, you have to look at the whole board, I think, at a certain point. It is really tough to make runs at the moment. I would be absolutely not surprised if, if India crumbled, well, their entire batting order crumbled in their, in their third innings. If you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on the podcast and they've made 500, then okay, I was wrong. But I wouldn't be surprised at that because they're massively behind in the game and England are bowling really well. I think the pitch has flattened out a little bit, but... Teams are going to crumble a lot at the moment. This is an incredible era for bowling. And I think we have to readjust how we think about individual players and teams at the moment. But that was all the Patreon people. So thank you very much, uh, everyone on Patreon. And let me just go across to the questions from the audience on Green Room. Baska. Are you there, Baska? Yeah. So uh, my question is about cricket analysis. So I see mm-hmm. that uh, now all the analysis, the, which is being uh, there in all the media and uh, is all head-to-head analysis, ball-by-ball analysis. And uh, I've tried to do a lot of analysis myself, but I am kind of restricted to stats guru on cricket four, which is basically innings-wise analysis. So my mm-hmm. first question is that where, if, I, if I, as an amateur analyst, I want to do that kind of analysis on ball-by-ball and also probability of uh, winning, uh, impact of wicket on probability of winning, where can I get that data? And my second question... Yep, I'm not very good when people ask me two questions in a row, so let me answer that one simply for you. Crick sheets. Is it Cricksheet? Might be Cricksheet. I always forget if it's Cricksheets or Cricksheet. Cricksheet.org or Cricksheets.org um, should have all the ball-by-ball stuff that you need. Okay. Not all and of it, but a lot. <laughs> okay, good. And uh, that was fast. And my second question is that, what about a career as a cricket analyst? How does you even go about that? If somebody wants to pursue analysis, is it all about desk analysis or is it about uh, actually working in a team? Because you have done both of them, right? You actually are a uh, a journalist as well as working with teams. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I'm the ideal person to answer this because, you know, I worked at Crick Info for eight years first. So um, you can always try that. Um, look, essentially, it, it is about contacting coaches, owners, general managers, assistant coaches, captains, and saying, I know this stuff that I think can help your team. I think that's the most basic way of doing it. I think we'll have... We'll have analysts who travel with the team going forward and we'll have analysts who don't travel with the team. Um, you know, uh, we'll, But I also think that there'll be specific analysts. You know, There'll be fast bowling analysts, spin bowling analysts, batting, middle order, top order, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's really you find the information that you think will help the team and then you ask the team. Um, contact the team. LinkedIn is your best friend. Every second cricket coach in the world is on LinkedIn. There you go. There's a tip for everyone. But thanks so much for your question, mate. Thank you. All right. Who we got next? Leo Hartley. How you doing? Yes. Hello, Jared. Leo, you're... how are you? I'm good, thank you. How you doing? How's your arm? Yeah, good. Attached? That's a bit further than not attached, I guess. My question yep. is, uh, who do you think is going to win the CPL this year? Do you know what? I haven't had a look at the teams properly, uh, partly because of my arm and partly because the test series has been on. My default answer is always Trinidad uh, because they seem to have an amazing uh, squad of players. Um, that I, I, I'll put it this way. A salary cap defying squad is maybe the best way that I would put 
what Trinidad do. Um, I, I would, Guyana I always like in the in the regular games because their pitches suit them a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I I think those are the two teams that that um, come off. But I haven't done a huge amount of analysis. Um, what about you? Who, who have you got in the CPL? Well, I think this year particularly, I mean, I, I get what you mean about Trimbago. They always seem to end up doing well. But yesterday they lost the first game in did, yeah. which, like, a difficult game and it wasn't that close, to be honest. But I, I think St. Kitts have got a good shout this year. They obviously brought in Chris Gale. They've got such a strong top order. And Bravo is a great captain. So I think that they've got a good chance to kind of bring back their reputation around the CPL because they always seem to come last and they've never really yeah. been in any chance of winning. I think if I'm if I remember correctly, they were one of the three franchises that was up for sale as well. So so my guess would be that I think Jamaica, St. Kitts, and Barbados were up for sale. Barbados obviously got sold to Rajasthan. I always worry about the teams in the CPL that don't have strong ownership. It's a really interesting league. Um, if you don't have owners who are all in, if that makes sense, uh, it, p- things can slip by. Um, and that, that's not to say they don't have the talent, but is everyone pulling together? Because, because you know, having been involved with St. Lucia when that was that situation, everyone, we actually came together as a team because of how bad the situation was, but it can go the complete other way. And I have certainly seen that in the CPL before. It's a very, very, God, I don't even know the best way of putting it, but it's, it's a really, really interesting league because it's quite an intense few weeks um, compared to some of the other T20 tournaments. But um, thank you. I was just going to ask, do you ever think that we could see the Champions League of T20 coming back at all? I think it's a big problem because Karen Pollard will qualify for every team in a way that Messi doesn't. And I think that is always going to make it look a bit silly. Um, I Look, I thought it was a great idea when they tried it. I know why it didn't particularly work. Um, maybe in 10 or 15 years when, when some of these other leagues are stronger. Um, I just don't think any of the leagues are strong enough compared to the IPL. Not to mention that incredible moment in the Champions League where Mumbai played with an extra overseas player um, because they wanted to. Uh, so... Uh, I think we'd probably need slightly stronger rules going forward. <laughs> yeah, you'd end up with Joe Warden managing every team as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah, if if you if you had like if the hundred was a two month competition and the Big Bash was a three month competition and the IPL was a six month competition, maybe you could start to go towards that. Um, I'm not sure, but as it currently stands, no. Uh, thanks for your questions, though, mate. All right, who we got next here? Are you? Hey, Jared. How are you? Not too bad. How can I help you, mate? So I wanted to talk about this incident. I'm not sure you're aware, but so Tim Wigmore, who's who's a journalist himself, so he he tweeted something out about how uh, India getting rattled in the in these pitches is about uh, in these conditions, and you know nobody will talk about it because it's not a specific condition or it's not subcontinent. And what I wanted to talk about was not about the pitch that that did it because I know your opinions on that. But I wanted, because I I don't know if you're aware, but Jimmy Nisham got pretty actively involved in it. And he went after uh, everyone who was commenting. And he was like, oh no, it was suspected or red teams, uh, Dr. Pichet and all those things. So uh, my point of view is that should active players be involved, that involved in Twitter and their opinions? And, you know, because New Zealand is coming to India in the next month. So do you think that that might actually cause troubles to, uh, or, or, that gives India the leeway that, you know, or do players actually have that concept that this team owns, you know, th- this is how we are going to get it. So we are anyway demoralized because that sounded like a demoralized comment that, oh, no, we are anyway going to get the spinning track. But India also has Mohali and uh, Dharamshala, which are great spinning tracks, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. I mean, look, I think I, I, 
I don't think, oh, actually I have. I worked with Scotland when we went to UAE. And I think, you know, that the, the general conversation we had beforehand was the pitches are going to spin. If you come to England, the general conversation should be beforehand that pitches are going to seem. Um, I would say that the biggest, uh, I, I didn't catch all of Jimmy Neesham. I think I saw one or two tweets um, where he was talking about first-class pitches. I mean, first-class cricket and T20 cricket is where the real pitch doctoring happens. We talk about it at an international level. No, nothing. You can't get away with that much at an international level because everyone's watching. Um, some of the pitch doctoring in first-class cricket and T20 cricket um, is remarkable. Uh, so it's part of our game. I think it's funny. I had this conversation. I'm commentating at the moment with Stuart Mika, and I was saying to him that I think in the next 10 years, it wouldn't surprise me if the ICC take over pitch curation in, in, um, in test cricket and international cricket in general, in the same way that we did it with umpiring. And that doesn't mean that you won't have, you know, uh, as you said, Mahali seems. So you would have probably, you'll still have the local curators there, but you'll have the, um, you'll have a checklist of, okay, what, what has Mahali done um, consistently throughout its last 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Okay, that's the, that's the template of what we want the Mahali pitch to continue to do. Um, but it is be overseen by the ICC rather than overseen by local curators. I mean, local curators can be rogue. Um, but as far as, as far as players go, I, I think Jimmy Neesham's probably right to be, you know, we're going to go to India and most of the pitches are going to spin. That should be the headspace you're in. You know, uh, I, I, the, it can get negative, I think, at a time. Um, I think some players like freak out a little bit and it's just like, oh, they're going to doctor all the pitches against us. And I think I've proven this in my writing a couple of times. It's just like, I don't think the Western players actually understand how much the pitches spin in first-class cricket, in in parts of India, but certainly in Sri Lanka as well. Um, and so they think, oh, look how much it's spinning on day one. It's like, well, go and watch a first-class game in Gaul. Um, if you're a seamer, you might as well not play, right? You know, uh, so, some some of the some of the grounds have like 80% spin bold um, in Sri Lanka. And, and, you know, quite a few in India have well over 50, 60, 70% as well. So, uh, you know, if you, if, you know, it might come back to, by Jimmy Neesham, but he's a big boy and he's used to Twitter and he says a lot of things and it's kind of part of the way that he's building his career after cricket would be my guess as well. I don't, I don't particularly know Jimmy at all. Um, but yeah, I think I think the bigger problem is that, you know, I, I don't think that Western cricket people really understand how much spin there is naturally, even in a domestic game in parts of Asia. And also the same way that, when 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 a pitch like this happens at, at Leeds, and uh, and the in, Indian fans are like, oh, they've you know they've made a green seamer. Look at it; it's unplayable. They're, they're doctoring their pitches. It's like, you know, go and watch Darren Stevens bowl in a county game if you want to see a green seamer in England. Oh my God! Like, no, none of the test wickets or anything like anything like that. But uh, you know, thank you very much for your question. Thanks, David. What is she there? Uh, hi, can you hear me? I can. Uh, yeah, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, I'm a huge fan, love all the stuff you do. And, Thank you. Uh, I'm so glad that you're recovering from your, your freak accident. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I my question, I have two questions, but I think I'll just miss it to one in case uh, there's not enough time. So I wanted your views on uh, uh, Rajasthan Royals specifically, the IPL side, because I have followed a lot of your content uh, for a long time and and uh, I remember in the last, I mean, this year, before the IPL came to an abrupt end, 
you said that even you were surprised that Rajasthan Royals is not at the bottom in one of your weekly reviews. But I'd also followed your content before that. You actually praised them for a lot of uh, the recruitment and other things, uh, how data-driven they are. So uh, I mm-hmm. wanted your view on how, because I also have the similar feeling, because they are a team that often does things that seem very interesting, but somehow their on-field results are always just extremely weird and that the players not seem up to mark. So, yeah, I think, I think, like you don't, yes. Yeah, no, no. I think the reason I thought they should have been at the bottom was more to do with the Ben Stokes, Jofra Archer injuries. I don't think you can take, I think their team was so dependent on those two particular players that if you yank those out, um, it was off balance. I don't think they've got their local um, players correct. I don't know if you've heard the podcast with Manoj Badali when he came on. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was very honest at basically saying that they they haven't been, they haven't gone for it as much as they've wanted to, probably since they came back from uh, spot fixing. Um, they've been a little bit timid. I know that Manoj has a lot of big plans for Rajasthan and how they move forward, but I think that they've been stuck in that sort of small market mindset for a little while now. Like, and And there's no reason why they shouldn't be in that, but that also... When you're in that small market mindset, it also gives you the ability to be pioneers, as Rajasthan once were. And I think that they've been clever, but I also think that they're not doing anything particularly different to what the bigger teams are doing, right? So if I was involved with Rajasthan, what I would be saying uh, to Manoj and to their team and, and, you know, the CEOs and the Kumar and all the different people involved is let's go all in on what we think we should create rather than what the IPL teams do naturally. So the IPL teams all share data from the same companies. And, you know, um, I don't think any team, as far as I'm aware, has really nailed the analysis, the scouting, um, and the the strategy side of of T20 yet. And they're all sort of using the same um, templates for each other. Rajasthan has the ability to go rogue. I think, uh, especially now they have uh, Barbados as well, which is even more important. So I, I think that's really where that I think they will do that because I think Manoj is a big fan of American sports and Premier League. I think he understands that. I think they've now, I don't know if you see that their ownership now is now partly American, which I think will even be a more of a pivot to the way that the Americans um, co- um, uh, look after sport. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if they do that. But that's probably going to be in the next couple of years, would be my guess. I don't think we're going to see that with the second part of this season or even next season. But over the next couple of years, I think that's where Rajasthan can be quite... I think if, if I was running Rajasthan, it would be about innovation um, and trying to stay ahead of everyone else because we're never going to, they're never going to be able to outspend Mumbai or Kolkata or Delhi or those sorts of teams. So you have to kind of make... You know, I suppose Oakland Athletics is a very good... Um, uh, way of looking at this. Houston Rockets is probably another, you know, uh, another very good way of looking at this. That's the way that, or Brentford um, in the Premier League. Those are the sorts of teams that I'd be like, okay, let's look at what they have done and how they got ahead of the curve and let's go all in. So generally IPL teams just kind of, fo- like one team sort of does it and they all kind of shuffle off. I think that, that Rajasthan have the ability to maybe be up so fast moving that the other teams can't even catch up. Um, and that should affect them on the field. But um yeah, Manoj in that in that podcast was really honest. I think you know he just said we haven't done what we should have done to get the team ready over the last couple of years. But uh, thanks so much for your question. There you are. 
Hi, Jared. So I was, I was watching the video you did with uh, Pirates Sundaresan on Pat Patterson. And mm-hmm. that, was, I mean, that was absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you. So yeah, my question was, how hard does it become for a player in an ongoing series to change what they are doing? Like the 3-4 and 5-4 India aren't making runs and they haven't been making runs for a while. So how mm-hmm. difficult does it become for a player to change his mindset and to get into form? Uh, look, it's one of the hardest things, I think, in professional sport to change yourself mid-season. You know, I, we, I, I talked about Sudeep's question at the top about, you know, uh, why doesn't Virat Kohli just take his cover drive away? It's not an easy thing to do from test to test. It's not a natural thing. Um, th- these are, you can make small tweaks and you can change things, but there's also, let's say, uh, I mean, let's go with Virat. Let's say he takes the cover drive away. There's also the unintended consequences of that. Will it change his shape? Will it change the way he defends? Will it change his footwork? All these sorts of things that he doesn't know. And sometimes you see players change their technique from test to test, and it doesn't always work. It's incredibly hard. You know, what, what, what's, is it the famous quote about, I think it might have been from an old NFL quote, uh, coach, who said, the hardest thing in sport is to change the thing that's always worked for you. Um, and you're talking about guys who have always worked. And it doesn't mean they're not making constant tweaks, but... We just go, oh, don't play the cover drive or, you know, um, stop, stop, stop facing, uh, stop going at the wide ones or, you know, in, in Johnny Bairstow's case, stop flicking across the line. It's like, these are the shots that have got them to that level. These are the shots that have got them the most of their runs. Suddenly they're going against them. It's a tricky thing. I, I really, it's really hard to work on a player. Um, I, mean, I remember dealing with a bowler. I think I probably told this story before, but I remember dealing with a bowler who was really struggling with left-handers. And he always bowled over the wicket to them. And I said, why don't you bowl around the wicket? And he goes, because I've never bowled around the wicket. Now, it took him about a week, a week and a half of bowling around the wicket in the nets to feel comfortable to try it in a match. Um, sometimes that might be a month. It might be two months. It might be three months. Like these are not, it's not, there aren't that many quick fixes. If there were quick fixes out there, players would come out of form funks like that. And they don't, um, you know, and generally most form funks are, you know, technically based or conditions based. These are hard things to overcome. And, you know, you have got to the top level backing yourself and suddenly everyone's telling you you need to change. It's very, very tricky. Uh, but thank you very much for your question. If you could just remove yourself a speaker because the green room's gone all weird on me. Sure. Uh, thank you, no worries. Path, are you there? So my question is about Manish Pandey. He's always yep. been like the backup number four, even at the highest, uh, when, when we were talking about who's India's number four, he was always the backup number four. No one saw him as the number four. So he plays for SRH and this is the stat that's, you know, worrying. So 16 games for SRH, he's caused the individual score of 30 and 14 of those games, SRH went out to lose. So he's someone who's capable of playing a match, consistently playing a match losing innings. And so... Uh, Probably wouldn't put that on his business card, would he? Yeah, yeah. So, and he's in a team with Kane Williamson, Rashid Khan, and David Warner, and Bhuvneshwar Kumar, and he's paid 11 crores. But that's not in his control. But would you stay away from him? Uh, because he's kind of a on the high demand player. He's an experienced middle order Indian batsman. So he's a high demand player. So would you tell other teams to stay away from him after you know this about him? Well, I'm not too worried about the match losing stats. Because some of that has got to be out of his control at a certain point. And I'd be more worried about his overall stats, uh, of which he's, he, he starts slow. He doesn't necessarily catch up. He chews up a lot of balls and then he goes out. 
he he's not a ideal T20 player. He doesn't have the ability to adapt his game. Uh, I'd be shocked if he hadn't been told a hundred times, you know, that he needed to change his game by this point. That's probably where I'm more concerned with him. Uh, your particular stat is fine. I don't know if I've looked into that sort of stuff a lot. I, you know, Andy Flower averaged fifty and lost a lot of Test matches for Zimbabwe. Right? I don't think we're blaming Andy Flower um, for Zimbabwe's losses at a certain point. Um, you know, Richard Hadley took a um, Richard Hadley and Murali took a lot of wickets in losing matches as they did in winning matches. But I think his overall record would suggest that he does not have the ability to find a third gear, let alone a fourth or fifth gear. I think he is a drag on the batting, and I don't think his positives outweigh his negatives enough at the price. A commentator who suggested that he should develop an offside game like Sky, and because Sky developed an offside game, he's better, he's much better than he was now. So maybe he has not been able to do that. I won't compare him to Sky, but Shikha Darwan was for a very long time a very, very ordinary T20 player, despite the fact that he had a better game than Manish Pandey, right? Um and Lendl Simmons, another guy who played in the IPL and was very much in demand and then turned himself into a very, very ordinary T20 player. Both of those players, Andre Fletcher's maybe another one, um, who have come out of it. They eventually, what happens is you stop getting paid lots of money or teams stop treating you like a star. Suddenly you go, oh, okay, everything everyone said has clicked in. I, you know, and and I've, I've seen it with players before. So I, I have no doubt that... You know, if Manish Pandey doesn't get picked up in an auction or ends up on the bench for a team, he's going to be looking at it going, okay, what have I done wrong? Maybe I should have listened to all those people. Um, and those sorts of things do happen. Sometimes you, it's very hard for the penny to drop for some players. They're like, it's, it goes back to, was it the previous question or the question before, where he's been successful doing what he's always done, but the game has changed and he has not, evo- he has not um, evolved with it and he's fallen a little bit behind. Uh, if you could remove yourself... Uh, that would be great. I'll go on to the next question. Thanks for that one. Raj, are you there? Yeah. Hi, Jared. Uh, can you hear me? I can. What's your question, Raj? Uh, my question is, regarding the slow over rates, why has it become so difficult for teams to keep up with the over rates? Like, India had Jadeja bowling about uh, 25 to 30 overs in the first game and still they got points there. They did a for their slow over rates. Is that uh, the uh, rule which is uh, pretty strict enough or... Doesn't the players get uh, don't get that uh, so or don't follow the uh, thing where, where they which they used to like uh, India don't even uh, like uh, when we see in the in the last three tests it wasn't even ninety overs uh, every day right mm-hmm. okay this, this is easy basically if you've got a bunch of fast bowlers you want them to rest so you slow down on purpose uh, we now have more breaks in an international day than we've ever had for DRS and electrolyte breaks and all sorts of different things. Um, we uh, Batting teams now have more breaks than they've ever had before, and the ICC don't care. So it keeps happening, and they get the ICC get the extra half an hour and the home boards get the extra half an hour. Um, you know, uh, when it comes down to it, that's what they would do. If you were to rush through your 90 overs every day, you would have to use more part-timers. You would... Have to use, I don't know if you remember that test match when Mike Hussey was running between bowls to bowl for Australia, his little medium paces. Teams don't want that. They want to use their frontline bowlers. They want their frontline bowlers to have plenty of energy. 
you know, if you're playing with someone like Shannon Gabriel, it takes him 10 minutes to bowl an over at the best of times. Uh, you don't want Shannon Gabriel rushing through his over because Shannon Gabriel's not a rusher. So essentially there is no real push from anyone in cricket outside the fans and occasionally the media to really fix this. Teams are happy to have the extra half an hour at the end of the day. It stretches them out a little bit. Um, the They could fix it very easily. Uh, we've seen in the 100 error measures there. Uh, we could have harsher penalties in the World Test Championship. Um, there are many different things that we could do, uh, you know, and we've allowed batters to be slow. We've allowed the bowling team to be slow. It's no longer just about the bowling team. Um, essentially, I don't see any will from the people who run cricket, whether the cricket boards or the ICC, directly to make the game any shorter. Um, so that's basically what it comes down to, Raj. Sorry about that. Thank you for your question. Danny. Hi, Jared. How you doing, mate? What's your question? Good, yeah. I was just wondering about the selection of Johnny Bairstow over Oli Pope. I know Oli Pope was injured, but I would personally select Pope just because it was amazing first-class average. But then he sort of brought in Bairstow as a, maybe a temporary fix experience, but hasn't got a great test record. So I was just wondering who you'd select if you were selector. I mean, I think, look, I think Oli Pope's great, but I do think he has struggled at a test level. I probably, with Oli Pope, prefer him to bat slightly lower down the order. I prefer Pope to bat at six at the moment, get a couple of years un un under his belt before he goes up. Um, I, I think Bairstow's fantastic. I think England uh, ruined a, a top-quality player uh, by trying to, I don't know, get a slightly higher strike rate out of Joss Butler, realistically. I think it was a stupid decision. Um, the interesting thing about Bairstow is that he's basically batting in the Ben Stokes position, isn't he? And he's not going to do that. So he's more likely to be able to bat at three, I would have thought, than Pope is right now. And if that's the case, it's not a bad thing to get Besto back in the team, maybe get some, you know, some test deliveries back uh, with him and then he can go. The other thing about Besto is that I think his game at the moment is much more, or it's just more rounded than uh, Pope and he's much better player of spin. Uh, I think Pope really struggles against spin at the international level. And, I can see why in the short term, Bairstow might be a better um, option. But yeah, I, there's nothing you've said that doesn't should, you know, uh, Pope's record is phenomenal. I, I just want Pope to kind of, if, if I was in charge of Pope, I'd just be sending him um, overseas as much as possible, especially to Asia, um, getting as much uh, experience as he can um, and batting him up the order. So maybe batting him three, you know, for Lions tours in Asia and, and things like that. Getting him, because uh, I think that's where he's eventually he's going to have to bat, isn't it? And if, if Root's going to bat at four and Stokes is going to bat at five, which looks like those two spots, it's like Pope can only bat at three or six. Um, and, you know, six is probably where they're going to want an all-rounder, another all-rounder if they can fit them in, someone like Mo and Ali. Um, and so eventually Pope's going to have to go up the order and he's going to have to face a lot more spin and he's going to have to do it a lot more successfully. But uh I think Bairstow is maybe just a safer pair of hands in what is a very big series with another very big series coming on the back of this. But great question, Danny. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. All right. I've got a chance for about two more questions, I think. So Kyle's come through. Hey, Kyle. Hi. How you doing? Good, good. So I just finished watching the Pakistan-West Indies series mm -hmm. and noticed something. So Kyle Mayers had a 210 not out on his debut. And since then, hasn't done that much in this series. He had three ducks, but his average, you know, going into his last innings was still looking pretty good at 40-something. 
is there a better way of determining average that takes out some of those outliers, some of those beginnings that gives us a more accurate picture of what a player is? Or is that just the best stat that's available? So short term, averages aren't particularly great as a metric. So anything under 20 matches, averages can be massively um, dented in either direction, right? By, by a not out, you know, that, you know, uh, or if you're a bowler, um, you know, and you're Chris Wokes and you play 15 straight tests at home, for instance, I don't know if Chris Wokes did that, but if you did play 15 straight tests at home, we, I think we have to factor that in. Um, long-term, it generally does even out and averages become quite a good metric. Um, so Kyle may, may I, I assume he's going to average around 30 in test match cricket would be my guess at best. Uh, he's not a particularly high run scorer in first class level. I know he played that phenomenal innings and he's worked on his batting a lot, but he was more of a bowler um, uh, when he was younger. If, if my, if, if I'm remembering back to my notes uh, of him um, and, and the way that they particularly worked there. So look, I think, um, I think over a long period of time, average is quite good, but there is an, there are other ways of doing it. For instance, um, if if you look at the match situations of when a player comes in, uh, so let's say it's three for fifty uh, in Guyana, what does the average number five make uh, when he comes in at three for fifty in Guyana? Right, and then you so there there are other ways of doing it rather than average, um, but I still think you'll find that being that Kyle made, he, he would still be so much in the plus because of that one innings. Uh, that is part of the problem of analysis when it comes to test cricket, that one innings, especially for a batter, can change things so monumentally to your overall figures. Um, that's always, always going to be the case, I think. Um, uh, what, what the, when Cricket Australia hired a data company to come in and, and work out test cricket, they called it the monster. And it is because of problems like this that are not easy, easy to overcome. Um, you know, it really is a, um, what's the best way of putting it? It's really a uh, uh, so specific, um, you know, look at Akshar Patel's figures. Like we, no one, no one's ex- expecting him to go on and average that, but he's going to have a good bowling average for a long time. Um, even if he has, you know, five, six, seven, eight bad test series, um, just because of how many wickets he took at the start. And it happens a lot. Jimmy Adams was another player. I think Jimmy Adams was a really smart player for West Indies back in the day, but he, he had a very good start to his career with a very high average and it took a long time for it to come down. Mike Hussey was another one. Uh, that, that's a, that's a, that's a problem within that, but it also, it's probably why you should look at rolling averages a little bit. You know, what is that person averaging in the last two years, three years, five years, those sorts of things, because uh, there's a lot of ups and downs and there's a lot of good series that suit people. You know, you might play in a series where you make 600 runs because the opposition fast bowlers are all injured or whatever that situation is. Um, And in test batting specifically, it is, um, so weighted in that direction. So uh, great question, Kyle. But yeah, I, I think that's why in, in, for someone like, um, for someone like Mayers, I always would factor in his first class average in this particular situation, because if he was averaging 40 or 45 in first class cricket, I'd be like, well, maybe he can keep it around 40 and that innings is um, representative. But my memory of him is that he does not average anywhere near there. But uh, thanks for the question. Appreciate it, Jared. Feel better. Jeez, thanks, mate. All right, I have. Last question, pass. Let's do this. So my question is about Josh Butler and uh, the England team's approach. So twice in two different series now, they've 
refused to chase uh, a target of 250 to 300 in the fourth innings. So is this just conservatism or you said yourself like if Rishabh Pant would have batted the, for, for one more hour in that Sydney test, India would have won that game. So could England also approach it like they should chase down 250-300, right? And in future, do you see teams declaring around that total? I don't think England back their batting at all. I think they're very nervous about their batting and that's not the case of India. I know, weirdly, about 90% of the questions I get usually are about Indian batters. Um, but as I've said over and over again, other than New Zealand, India's got the strongest batting lineup in the world. England do not. They don't have a top order. Their middle order is full of very talented players with very big flaws like Stokes and Besto and Butler and Moeen at the moment. Uh, I just don't think they back themselves. Um, whereas if you've got Pajara, Rahane, Kohli, Raul, you know, Shubman Gill, um, Vahari, and, and you've got Jadeja coming in at seven and maybe Ashwin at eight, it's completely different to what England is currently going at. That's a bunch of people with averages above 40, sometimes above 50, right? Or around 50. Um, you're obviously going to back that batting lineup, and then Rishabh Pant's going to do what Rishabh Pant does. A lot of the attacking nature of Rishabh Pant gets oversold as him being attacking. He attacks because he knows he's about to edge to the slips, right? He's not, he's not always just attacking because he's like reckless and he's a madman. He's attacking because he's got a big weakness and that's his way of getting past that weakness. In the same way that Butler comes down the wicket and, and Ben Stokes plays the way that he does. Players with those kinds of flaws, they sometimes attack so that you can't get to their, their weaknesses. Um, but in England's case, I mean, that, that top three of, you know, Sibley and Burns and... Uh, the lineup for, for, for that cheese? Like, they could just send Bairstow and Butler up the order. Look, they could have, but... I, Butler's not a particularly great test player to be able to send him up the order. Look, I probably would have done that. I probably would have tried um, someone like Butler up the order in at least one of those chases. But I think it tells you a lot about where England is at mentally at the moment. They didn't do that. I think if Trevor Bayless was coach, they'd probably do that. But I think Silverwood is a... Silverwood was a really talented bowler and a really pragmatic sort of player, I think, in many ways. And I think he's come across to coaching in that way. Um, I know there were a lot of people in English cricket in the first chase, uh, it must have been the New Zealand one, wasn't it, that were very upset that uh, England didn't go for it. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, in the Indian one, it never even looked like they were even batting. I'm not sure if they were going for the chase or not going for the chase. They were just out of the game so early on. Um, but look, there's nothing you've said that is wrong. I just think that it's a bit like, I remember in the, in the 2000s, people would be like, oh, look at Australia smashing the ball everywhere. Why aren't they, are these other teams trying to smash the ball everywhere like Australia? And it's like, because they're not as good as Australia. And I have the players to do it, right? Um, if, if you put Joss Butler, if you replace Joss Butler um, with, uh, with Rishabh Pant, so Joss Butler batted six or seven for India, reckon, you know, you know yeah, he's not, I don't think he's quite as good as Rishabh Pant, but I think he would, he would go for it a lot more. How often do we see Butler come in these days and he's like 10 off 40 balls or five off 25 balls? Like He was supposed to be the original you know, replacement for Adam Gilchrist, but then that went to Rishabh Pant. I really don't even think that... You see, this is the thing. I, here's one of my favorite stats. We're going to finish the podcast with, with one of my favorite stats. And I've said it a lot of times, but I would never stop saying it. When David Warner did really well, England wanted to copy that and they brought Alex Hales in to be their attacking opening batter. Alex Hales ended up with a slower strike rate than Alistair Cook. 
Most of that is because it is really hard to consistently attack in England. Someone like um, <coughs> Matt Pryor, whose strike rate would have been, what, 55-60, is probably similar to what Quentin de Kock's strike rate is at 75-80 in South Africa. It is really hard to score consistently fast in England because you do nick off a lot more and the pitchers favor the bowlers and the balls keep Thinking that their top order would fail because, you know, that's why Sam Curran is picked. Like people were saying, Sam Curran should bat at six. That's Sam Curran is picked because he's not a fourth bowler, but he's a batsman who bats at eight. They, they're going in with a designated number eight and number nine because they think their top order is already going to fail. Because they're right. It does fail. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I just, they're not wrong. They, you know, I remember talking to them oh, two or three years ago about all the all-rounders, and they said, what are we supposed to do? We can't find three batters at the top who can do anything, so we're better off to have six, seven, eight, nine who can bat. They're not wrong. New Zealand did this for generation, didn't they? I mean, you know, we've seen lots of teams try this. If you can't find a top three, you have to bat deeper um, in test cricket because your four, five, and six suddenly become your top three, and then when they're out, uh, you need a, a stronger batting coming down. So... I think everything sort of goes back to that for England. But Path, thank you very much for your question. In fact, thank you everyone for your questions. You know, we usually do the green rooms on Friday. So if you want to be involved in a Spotify green room, you download the green room app and you follow me at Jared Kimber, I think, and you can come and ask questions. We usually put it up on Instagram and Twitter when we're, uh, the exact time we're going to go live. But obviously these podcasts will go up on the Red Inca and up on YouTube. As I said, if you want to ask the first question, if you want to be the opening batter of the wagon wheels that we have here, you can uh, support us on Patreon. And one of the tiers there allows you to ask uh, questions over here. But thank you. Really good questions again. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you to everyone. New Red Inca podcast up about my arm and how I injured it. There's a content warning because some of it's sick is fair to say. I've got a couple of good videos coming up. I don't know if any of you guys saw the rules video with the, uh, the one-day game between South Africa and Ireland. That was good fun. Uh, but thanks again for all your questions, and I'll see you again next week on Spotify Green Room slash Wagon Wheel slash YouTube, all the different places I am. Thanks for everything. Sports Social Podcast Network. Breast Milk Science. It's a thing, and it's our thing. We're Byheart. We're an infant formula company on a mission to get a lot closer to the most super, super food on the planet, breast milk. Our patented protein blend has more of the important and most abundant proteins found in breast milk. We're the first and only U.S.-made formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. We make our formula in our own factories in Iowa, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, using a small batch manufacturing process that works to preserve the integrity of our ingredients. We ran the largest clinical trial by a new infant formula company in 25 years and clinically proved benefits like easier digestion, less gas, and softer poops versus a leading infant formula. We were the first infant formula company to earn the Clean Label Project Purity Award. And while we've put a lot into Byheart, there's a long list of things you won't see on our ingredient list, like no corn syrup, no maltodextrin, no GMO ingredients, no soy, no palm oil. Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.